Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 106, and we're going to talk all about drones. You know, those things that you have to have if you have a van that you kind of fly around in the middle of nowhere and everybody hates you for? Yeah, those. We're also going to have a tale from the road involving... Uh, a beach and a lethal weapon, a product review of aluminum cups, which I'm kind of intrigued by, and a place to visit that's named after a plant, but doesn't have any plants. Not really, anyway. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Thank you for joining me here once again, wherever you are. I can tell you where I am, and I am in a murder sausage factory, which is where I often am. Uh, Anyway, let's uh, talk about drones. The thing about drones is that they are wonderful. Drone technology has come so far so fast that you can buy a drone now for, well, a few hundred dollars at least. I wouldn't recommend getting one of the super cheap ones. And uh, you don't really need to know how to fly it. Uh, They kind of fly themselves now. I mean, all these fancy shots you see on YouTube with the drones flying around the van as it's driving away and all that stuff, that's basically just pressing a couple of buttons on your phone, and it goes up and it does all that. And that's great, because for people like me, I, I will never be one of those guys that's in sport mode flying their drone through the trees at high speeds or anything like that. That is not me. And The pricing on drones now has come down that most people who have any interest in photography can afford to get a drone and get really, really high quality footage out of these things. Now, I have a, I have two drones, actually. I have a Trello, which is a $99 drone, and I have a Mavic Air 2, which is the one model older of the Mavic Airs, and that's by DJI. Now, the Trello that I got for 99 bucks, honestly, I don't think it's useful. Um, it connects to your phone via Wi-Fi, so while you can control it with your phone, obviously, that's what you do, and it does have some of these pre-programmed modes, Wi-Fi is just so variable that... I'm always afraid of losing control of it. And because it's an ultralight, this thing weighs nothing. That it gets blown away by the simplest of winds. I think that this would be a good solution if you wanted to do a drone inside. Like you had a, you know, a gymnasium or something where you wanted to fly a drone. I think the little one would be good for that. But if you want to make YouTube videos or whatever, no, it, it really isn't going to do it for you. So you need to go up to uh, Mavic Air or Mavic Air two or something along those lines, something a little bit more substantial. The Mavic Minis are fine. They take great footage. After hearing all this, why wouldn't you have a drone? I mean, heck, go to Best Buy and buy a drone right now or pick one up on Amazon. Or, well, let's let's talk about some drone realities here. First off, DJI is the company that makes most of these drones, and they have questionable business practices. They are a Chinese company, they make excellent products, they have great software, but people who track these things have noticed that the software reports things back to Chinese IP addresses and no one's really sure what that is. And there is some thought that possibly the Chinese government is tracking what everybody is doing with these drones. Now. I am not a big conspiracy theory guy, but this seems to be something that is of enough legitimate concern that the government has prohibited the use of DJI drones for any official activity and has actually prohibited investment in the company by government employees. 
So I have a friend who is involved in military activities in another country, actually. I was talking to them about buying drones, and they urged me not to buy anything from DJI because of this issue. So there's that one thing. Now, I should say that I didn't take his advice, and uh, I actually own a DJI Osmo Pocket 2, which is you know what it really is? It's a handheld drone. <laughs> it's the same camera that's in the drones, but it's on a stick. And that's what I use to film my YouTube videos. But I've decided that um, this isn't something I'm going to worry about. It's not like I'm filming government bases or anything like that. And heck, if they want to see my campsite in China, well, more power to them. But you have to make that decision for yourself. So there's that one issue. A bigger issue, a much bigger issue in my mind, is that governments are really cracking down on drone usage. I am going to speak from a U.S. context here. I understand that Canada has a very similar issues going on with this and uh, the UK as well. You have to check your own local laws. But the way it is right now in the US, if you own a drone, you have to register it. Everybody does. That you have to register your drone. Now apparently there's an exception if your drone weighs less than 0.55 pounds, but that's going to get complicated and it will probably change over time. At any rate, you have to register your drone and you have to take a test and pass it in order to be able to fly your drone legally. And that's true no matter what you're doing. It's changing very quickly. Last year, it used to be that you only had to pass a test if you wanted to fly your drone commercially, which includes YouTube, by the way. And then they changed it so there is a very simple test you have to take for any drone flying right now. And honestly, you, you really can't fail this unless you try. Uh, and then you will get a certificate, and that makes you a certified hobbyist drone flyer. And you also have to have your registration number on the drone. On my drone, I actually had to write in Sharpie the number that they gave me to put on the drone. That way, if I crash my drone into a train or something and they find the drone, they can come after me. That's the idea. Eventually, all drones are going to have to have electronic reporting of a serial number, and they'll be able to track you from the air. So if you fly your drone down the runway at O'Hare, they'll be able to take a ping off of that and realize it's you and then come and arrest you. But right now, the technology and the laws aren't keeping up because it looks like the law is going to come into effect, but these drones don't have the capability of doing that yet. So we'll see how that plays out. Are you starting to get the idea that this is complex? Now, if, like me, you want to use your drone for YouTube, you have to get what is called a Part 107 pilot's license. And folks, let me tell you, I'm studying for it now. I actually have my exam tomorrow. You have to know as much as a pilot. Now, obviously, you're not going to learn how to fly a plane, but you have to be able to read a navigational chart you have to know the difference between Class B and Class C airspace. You have to know how to read a weather report that's just a string of numbers and letters. I mean, there is a lot to learn, and you have to do this every two years. Plus, the fee is 170 bucks just to even take the test, and it has to be done in person. And depending on where you live, that might be 100 miles away. It's clear that the government is trying to reduce the number of drones in the air. And, and here is my biggest issue with drones. My, the reason that, that I don't fly mine as much as I thought I would. First off, it's, it's the Part 107 thing because I can't actually use the footage I take yet. But second is that people hate drones. I mean, think about it. You're out somewhere on the beach or somewhere in some nice park and you hear... Ee! 
and it totally interrupts your day. You're going to be searching the skies for this drone, and then many of you are going to be wondering what that drone is doing. Is that drone spying on me? Who do they think they are? They don't have the right blah, 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 and it goes on and on and on. And that's just human nature. You guys remember Google Glass when that first came out? It was a camera that was that you wore like glasses, and it was always recording, or it allowed you to record people. People freaked out about that, going so far as to rip them off people's faces. And we're seeing a sa the same phenomenon with drones. If people see your drone, they hate you, they hate your drone, and some people will even shoot at it. And to me, this is a big problem, because... I don't want to annoy anybody, I just want to take some nice footage. Now what does the law say about this? Well believe it or not, in the US, you have the right to fly your drone anywhere you want so long as the FAA says it's okay. And the FAA says it's okay in most places. I mean obviously you're not going to be flying over military bases, you're not going to be flying near airports. And there's an app you can use, it's called B4B, the letter B, B, the number 4, U letter U, fly, that's the name of the app. If you start that app up before you fly your drone, it will warn you that, hey, you may be in an area that you're not supposed to fly. So it's not a big deal. Finding places to fly isn't the problem because the FAA controls the airspace. There's two issues with this. One is controlling the airspace is not the same as controlling where you can take off from. For example, anyone who owns private property can say, you may not fly drones from here. So that means that while you are lawfully able to fly a drone over that area, you can't let a drone take off from that area. And unfortunately, lots of local municipalities don't understand this, and they will set a drones are illegal here policy, but it's not true. Because the FAA is the only authority to control airspace. But what are you going to do? If you're out there flying your drone and a cop comes up and says, hey, you can't do that here, you can argue with the cop if you want, but... Do you really want to? I mean, I know there's there are people out there that love arguing with cops. I'm not one of them. My policy is that if someone complains about me flying a drone anywhere, regardless of whether I'm in the right or not, I'm going to stop flying the drone. That limits, to some extent, the places I can fly the drone. Uh, but it's not that big of a deal to me. Uh, I'm going to take the Part 107 exam, and hopefully I'll pass it. Again, This is it, it is some serious learning you have to do here. I do not think you can fake your way through this test, even though it's multiple choice, and it is some real knowledge you have to have. With all that said, should you get a drone? I would say you should only get a drone if you want to take footage for your personal use or you're willing to go through all the rigmarole of taking all the tests and dealing with people who hate you because you have a drone. And I think you need to expect change. The laws are changing fast and furious, and with all these drones out there, you know, every time Christmas comes, there are hundreds and thousands of more drones out there. We're going to see kids with drones doing stupid things, and that's going to make more laws, and so on and so forth. Just understand that drones are a complex thing. They're fun. They're great. The technology is amazing. And if you live in a place with lots of BLM land, heck, heck, you can do all kinds of amazing things with a drone. But if you live in a place that's near a national park, well, you can't fly drones in national parks. As beautiful as that is, you have to pay hundreds and hundreds of dollars for a permit to fly there. And they will come after you. There are many YouTubers who have posted drone footage who have gotten a nasty letter from the FAA with a multi-thousand dollar fine warning. So, 
That's the information I have for you on drones. I love it. I think they're great, but boy, it's complex. And make sure you understand all the intricacies before you decide to enter the world of drones. Tech Talk. This is tangentially Tech Talk, but I think it's important. I've talked about it before, and it's something that has come up for the Alaska cruise that I'm planning in May, COVID willing, that it's a good thing to know about. So, obviously, if you want to tell someone you're going to meet them somewhere, you can give them your address, or you can give them a place. Like, I want to meet at the McDonald's at 4th and Blake, or whatever. Whatever it is. But addresses aren't that precise, if you think about it. I mean, like, the building that I live in is huge. In fact, when they first built the building, they did street numbers different, and it took up 20 street numbers because it was that big. So I have an issue where when people come to my building, they don't know where the front door is. And if I just give them the address, well, they could actually be an entire block away from the front door when they park. Now, Google Maps isn't going to help with this. Uh, Apple Maps isn't going to help with it unless you use latitude and longitude. And boy, that gets complicated fast because there's different units and they're hard to type in. But it's okay. There's a solution for all this. And it is called What Three Words. That's right, what three words. And if you go to the website, it is what the number three words.com. And it's just like Google Maps or any of those, except that it translates any three meter square space on earth into three words. For example, I'm going to talk about the plant museum in the places to visit section. And this is an enormous place in Tampa, Florida. And I can give you the address. I, you don't even need the address. You can just type in Plant Museum Tampa, Florida, and it will come up. But where's the door? <laughs> where's the door? How do you get into this place? Because it's huge. Where's the parking? What if you wanted to meet somebody in a certain parking space? How would you tell them that? Well, what three words can do that? When you type in the address, it'll bring up a map, and then you can switch to satellite view, zoom in, and you'll see a grid. You can click on the square, the actual square that you're going to be at, and you'll get three words. For example, the staircase leading into the plant museum is at airless.duty.caskets. That's D-U-T-Y, airless duty caskets. And you can go to what three words, type in airless duty caskets, and bang, it will direct you right to that spot. It'll use streets, and then when the streets fail, it will give you walking directions to get there. This is really a very cool thing, especially for those of you out in BLM land, because imagine that you have found the perfect BLM site, and then you're like, uh, it's seven miles down the dusty road, and there's a broken down tree that's kind of burned on one side. You want to turn left there. I think the tree's still there. And then remember where there used to be that barn that, well, it blew down a few years ago? Turn right after. This doesn't work. What three words will work? Because if you have cell service, obviously you need some sort of a connection for this. Or you can prearrange it so you don't. When you have internet connection, you can figure this out and then tell people. You can say, hey, meet at cat light flag or whatever, and everyone will go right to that spot. It's a very cool project. It does the entire globe, so far as I can tell. 
So give it a look. It's what3words.com. I wish this would become more popular because I think it's a great idea. And on my Alaska trip, I'm going to use it to tell people where to meet. Like, for example, when we're in Juneau, a city that very few people on the cruise are going to be familiar with, I can just give them the three words and they know right where to go instead of like giving them an address or something that is always a little ambiguous because where we meet is going to be in a park or something. It's not going to be right at where that address is. So there's a link in the show notes, but hey, you can type in what three words and there's also an app too. So check it out if you haven't already. I think it's super, super useful. Tales from the road. This tale goes way back. I was just a wee tyke when this tale happened. And I, and this, this, this may be a story I've already told. I am an old guy now. I get to tell my stories over and over again, and you just have to deal with it because that's one of the perks of being an old guy. So way back... I maybe was eight or nine or 10. I don't remember what year it was, but I was in Salem, Massachusetts and my mom signed us up for this beach walk with a naturalist, which was a thing that my mom did all the time. I mean, a lot of my curiosity came from her. And if you're familiar with Salem, Massachusetts at all, or if you're not, it doesn't matter. There's a place called Salem Willows, which is an old trolley park that dates back to the early 1800s, and it's way out on a neck in Salem. And on the way out there, there are these little coves where the tide comes in, and then there's all kinds of seashells and stuff, and little beaches there. Not too many people go to these places, but they're kind of fun for tide pooling and stuff like that. And the naturalist wanted us to meet at one of those. So we go to the beach and she's showing us all the stuff in the beach. Like, oh, here is a goosefish jaw and here is a type of whelk that's only found in the Northeast and all this stuff. And even though I really like that stuff now, back then it was a little bit dry for me. So I did what most 10-year-old kids do is I wandered off. And so I was just, you know, looking to see what was in the water and... And I saw a toy gun. And I was like, oh, look at that, a toy gun. And I picked it up, and it was the heaviest toy gun I had ever felt. And I, I looked at it a little bit more closely, and it was covered with barnacles, and there was a periwinkle crawling on it. And I realized this was not a toy gun. I had found a real gun, a revolver, and if I were to guess now, it would be a thirty-eight snub-nosed revolver, the kind the old-fashioned police used to have, in the rocks, in the water. This is a cautionary tale because the very first thing I thought to do was to pull the trigger. Now, I told this story to other people and they're like, well, you just didn't have proper gun training as a kid and all that. And they're like, well, yeah, you're right. I didn't. We didn't talk about guns. Growing up in Massachusetts, guns were not a thing. Nobody had guns. I mean, that was a weird thing. And I understand it's very different in other parts of the country. But be that as it may, there I was, a kid on the beach who found a gun, and my first instinct was to pull the trigger. And in fact, I did. Or at least I tried to. This thing had been in the water so long that that trigger wasn't going anywhere. Heck, it may have even had the safety on. I don't know. Doesn't matter. But I ran up to my mother with this gun and said, hey, mom, look what I found. <laughs> and then she and the whole group are like, ah, horrified. And we had these plastic bags we were collecting seashells in. We put the gun in a plastic bag. And then my mom and I drove to a police station, a substation nearby. And the police were completely nonchalant about it. They're like, oh, yeah, thanks for the gun. Uh, it was probably used in a crime. Whatever. See you later. And that was the end of the gun story. Except that, folks, I have to tell you, a good portion of kids, when they find a gun, are going to try to pull the trigger. I know this because I was one of them. And that's a pretty scary thing. Now, what happened in this situation? What was the story of that gun being in the water? 
I don't know. I think somebody used that gun in a crime and then wanted to get rid of it and didn't understand how tides worked (laughs) and drove to this cove that was filled with water, threw the gun in, and then took off. And we were there at low tide, so this the gun was actually just barely in the water. It was maybe in two inches of water. So kind of silly. I don't know that they were able to trace the gun to a crime or anything like that. Probably not. But, hey, this is a tale that happened to me. It was near a road, and it's a cautionary tale that if you own a firearm, make sure kids can't get at it. Because they're kids. They do not have a lot of judgment. Please product review. I was shopping at the supermarket and I saw this weird thing and apparently it's been around for a while but it was the first time I'd seen it so of course I bought it. And well they're aluminum cups. You know those red solo cups that are ubiquitous at every party. Somebody pointed out to me that the reason these red solo cups are so associated with parties in the U.S. is because on TV on regular broadcast TV they're not allowed to show people drinking. Well I, I don't know if that's true or not but To me, I totally associate these red cups with parties. I mean, most parties I've been to, these were the cups that were there. And um, from my understanding, there were many places that when you rented a keg of beer, it would come with these cups, which kind of makes sense. At any rate, they're plastic, right? And a lot of us are trying to get rid of single-use plastics. And what if there was an alternative? Well, Ball, the company that makes mason jars and also makes most of the aluminum cans that we have in the U.S., now makes aluminum solo cups. Now, they're not technically solo cups, but they're the same shape and the same idea. And if I say aluminum solo cup, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, these things are a little bit more expensive. Actually, they're a lot more expensive than red solo cups. I paid, I think, $13 for 18 cups. And I think solo cups are more like 100 cups for $20, something like that. I'm not too up on my pricing. But there's no question that these aluminum cups cost more than the solo cups. However, they are washable. You can wash them many, many times. And I've been using one now for a while, and it is much thicker than a beer can. I mean, you could crush the thing if you wanted to, but it is not fragile at all. And washing it is fine. You're not supposed to put it in the dishwasher, but hand washing them is fine. And honestly, I like drinking out of the thing. I use it at home. So for me, 18 of these cups is going to last a really long time. And then if it gets dented or something really yucky gets in there or whatever, I can throw it out and not cry about it. So do these things have a place in van life? Well, maybe. They are very lightweight. They don't take up a lot of space. They're not super expensive. They're not breakable. In fact, they're much more durable than a Solo Cup. You know, if you drop a Solo Cup that's full, it's probably going to break. This thing will maybe dent. And I honestly like them. I mean, I, I think that they probably are a good solution. Why not just get permanent cups, which could actually be cheaper? <laughs> that's a very good question. I mean, why spend more for disposable cups? I don't know. (laughs) But to me, they are not really disposable. They're like those plastic Tupperware containers that you can get that you're supposed to use many times before you throw out. I think of them like that. Drawbacks. Other than the price, the only drawback I can find is that they're aluminum, which means they conduct temperature very, very well. They're not lined, and no, they don't taste like metal. That's not a problem because aluminum doesn't really have a taste. 
But if you have a very cold drink, you will have very cold fingers if you hold it. And that means they probably don't keep the drink as cold as long as a plastic cup would, but I think that's not very much. It also means that they sweat a lot. If you're in a humid environment, you are going to need a coaster for these things because they will just drip a lot. They will take moisture out of the air very readily. In fact, in my condo right now, it's, it's what, it's 20 degrees outside Fahrenheit, so the humidity is actually pretty low. It still sweats even in my low humidity condo at the moment. All that said, I am going to give them a yes. I like them. I recommend them. I think you should consider it if you have a need for a lot of cups. Like if you were going to have a party outside your van, didn't want single-use plastics, wanted to have something reusable or at the very least easily recyclable, ball aluminum cups might be the thing for you. I will have a link in the show notes. I did get mine at a grocery store, but I had never seen them there before, so Amazon might be your best bet in this case. A place to visit. I had a lovely trip to Tampa a few years ago, and... I ran across this place that I didn't know was there, and it's called the Plant Museum. Now, at this point, you're thinking, well, Jeff, that sounds like a museum of plants. And in fact, it is neither a museum, nor does it have anything to do with plants. I shall explain. <laughs> its full name is the Henry B. Plant Museum. You see, plant was the gentleman's name. And it's only a museum because it is an historic site that you go visit. It's actually a hotel. This guy, Henry Plant went to Tampa and thought, boy, there must be a way to make this a big tourist attraction. He built it in 1891, and it was a railroad resort. The idea was that you would take the railroad from anywhere and end up in Tampa, and then this would be where you stayed. This is an old-timey concept, but it's most obvious in the massive hotels you see in Canada that are associated with the railways. This was basically one of those. But he went way, way over the top in this place. It has all kinds of crazy features and grounds, and it was, a, it was like a, the Disney World of the day, without the amusement park rides, if you know what I mean. Now, when you go visit this place, you basically can walk around the grounds and then walk around the rooms and see how people lived in 1891. And this was for wealthy folks. This was the kind of place that people wanting to escape the winter or whatever would go to. And boy, no expense was spared. And it is huge. Now, probably the best time to visit is at Christmas because they do a whole bunch of Christmas stuff if you're into that. I don't like all the Christmas stuff. I feel like it gets in the way of the actual stuff I want to see, but it doesn't matter. Check it out. It is the Henry B. Plant Museum. Anytime you're in Tampa and you're looking to kill a few hours and see something interesting, this will definitely foot the bill. Resource recommendation. Well, I'm going to keep on the theme here of recommending YouTube stuff. This time, I recommend you watch YouTube videos about off-road recovery, and it will give you an idea of how easy it is to get stuck in your van. <laughs> One I've been watching is Matt's Off-Road Recovery. I'll have a link in the show notes. And um, Matt and his, his team live in Hurricane, Utah, down in Red Rock Country, and the sand there is super powdery fine sand. It's not like beach sand, and it's really easy for vehicles to get stuck there. In fact, most of his videos about recovering vehicles are recovering four-wheel drive off-road vehicles because when they get stuck, they are really stuck. But what a van lifer can learn from watching his channel is where not to go with your van. Some of these places, and he explains this in his video, is that folks will 
type a place in their GPS and it'll take him down these roads that they simply can't handle. And it's really useful to see how he gets people out and how people got into trouble in the first place. The big lesson in his kind of recovery is about high centering. That is where you dig your wheels down so much that the body of the vehicle is touching the ground. Once that happens, you are going nowhere. You are done. That vehicle isn't going to move until you raise it up or you find a way to dig out from under it, which probably isn't going to happen. He uses all different kinds of winches and equipment, and he has these really big bungee cords that he uses, and he actually pulls most people out with a little Jeep Cherokee, believe it or not. (laughs) Well, I say little. I should say a heavily modified Jeep Cherokee with massive wheels. Anyway, it's fun to watch. They're a nice, friendly channel. They seem like good folks, and you do actually learn something about getting stuck and getting unstuck and the realities of doing backroad travel in a vehicle that maybe isn't entirely set up for it. So give it a look and give all the other channels like this a look. You'll get suggestions if you look at this on YouTube. It's Matt's Off-Road Recovery. And by the way, if he ever does pull you out, you get a free t-shirt. Well, thanks everyone for listening to episode 106. Absolutely appreciate each and every one of you. Music as always is by Simon Wagg. Next week, I will be doing another sticker giveaway. If you're the kind of person that collects van life stickers, well, mine is more of a hook walk a bang sticker. I will explain next week. If you need to find me, I am at Jeff at builttogo.com. That's two T's, not three, not one. And until next time, remember the words of Helen Keller. Security is mostly a superstition. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing.